I'm Alicia Michalisic Kurtz, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where doctors and other healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. On today's episode, we'll hear a story from Vanessa Calderon, an emergency doctor in the San Francisco Bay Area. For the past few weeks, we took a break from our normal schedule to bring you the stories of some providers truly on the front lines of COVID-19. And we did that because, well, it just kind of felt weird to not do that. It seems like if you're not talking about COVID right now, you're not relevant. You're not having a conversation that's relatable to anyone since it feels like coronavirus has weaseled its way into literally every aspect of our lives. But just like we are getting sick of staying at home and wearing a mask and having all of our plans canceled because of COVID, here at Real Talk, if I'm being honest, we're pretty sick of talking about COVID too. And this is not to say that it's not still relevant and important. It absolutely is. But it just feels like a broken record. Uh, PPE, testing, the rising death tolls, the number of positive cases today, ongoing uncertainty about when this will end, and worst of all, the endless stream of anger and hate and blaming and fighting flooding the news and social media recently. And while some of these posts make legitimate points or raise genuine concerns, so many of them clearly carry the pervasive negative energy that just kind of seems to be everywhere, while these arguments and rants are going nowhere. I mean, come on. It's not like somebody is seriously going to read a post they disagree with online and suddenly find the error in their original thinking and have a complete change in their opinion. No! People are only digging their heels more firmly in their existing beliefs, now with the newfound gasoline on their fury fire against the other side. And to be super clear, I am not pointing at one group or the other. It's everyone. There's a group that says this is all fake, that it's made up, or that 5G or vaccines cause COVID-19. And some say the sickness and death that we're seeing firsthand are lies, that they're just a conspiracy or some weird ploy to destroy the economy. And there are some who say mandating people to stay at home or wearing a mask is the government moving toward a dictatorship or a fascist state, that this is all about money and power, and the actual illness and death toll are inaccurate or exaggerated. And then, of course, there's the scientists and the doctors who feel this sense of responsibility to correct or clarify the many false claims floating around out there, but are not always doing it in a way that's informative and helpful. Instead, it's often pretty aggressive and clearly filled with frustration too. Not that this frustration isn't warranted, but again, what is it accomplishing? Let's take a step back here for a sec. I think it's safe to say we all understand that being healthy includes mental, emotional, and spiritual health as much as it does the physical health of our bodies. And shutting down the economy completely does lead to many bad health outcomes for people. Not having a paycheck to put food on your table, the stress of losing your job, being socially isolated, missing milestones we've planned on for years, these are not small things. And while they may not seem as important as the medical science that we hold so dear, for many people, 
feeling like their freedoms are violated or threatening the financial stability of their family is as serious as physical sickness and death for them. So getting furious at the people protesting, at the people whose livelihoods have literally been cut off from something they are not seeing as clearly as we are in healthcare, it's probably not the best use of our energy. And certainly, there is no amount of arguing or Twitter battling that's going to change anybody's mind. Whether we like it or not, people's opinions are fueled by so much more than scientific data. And angry Facebook posts are not going to change that. Realistically, the answer for how to deal with all of this probably involves everybody on all sides giving in a little bit. We have to remember, the goal is not zero cases or to prevent all spread of coronavirus. Instead, the goal is to manage the spread of this disease and to protect our most vulnerable, to slow it down so we have the space and tools we do need to care for the sick. And how do we balance people's financial livelihoods against their physical health and safety, against literal lives? I don't know. And while I realize many of you listening may have strong opinions about this, I don't think any of us really knows the perfect solution. And maybe that is what we should all keep in mind. There's not one of us that would actually want to be responsible for calling the shots right now. That just can't be an easy job. So instead, we need to do our job really well to educate the people we love about what precautions to take to keep them safe and not let ourselves get super turnt when they don't agree with what we're saying, even if we know what we're saying is the truth. Anyway, to step off that soapbox for a minute, I think you can probably hear in my voice, I'm kind of burnt out on COVID-19. My wellness is definitely being tested, just like all of yours, I'm sure. But COVID-19 is not the first thing to ever cause doctors to get burnt out. In fact, uh, before this all started, if you can remember, it was absolutely in vogue to talk about provider wellness and burnout and compassion fatigue. The world had finally realized in more recent years that this is a serious issue, that our job working in medicine is not conducive to a long and fulfilling career, that instead, the way it is now often leads people to anger and job switching and frustration, divorce, substance abuse, suicide. So what was it that was driving us to be burnt out before COVID-19 seemed to be the cause for literally any and every stressor in our lives? And what should we do about that? This is Vanessa's story. So I am a mother of two kids, two beautiful little kiddos. I have a daughter who's five and a son who's three. And I just want to say hi to those little cuties if they're listening. Hi, Eva. Hi, Luca. I'm also an ED physician, a medical director and department chair in San Francisco. And I hail from a long line of resilient, strong, and gritty women. In fact, my mom, Olivia, is one of the most resilient women I know. And as an example, 18 months after she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, she decided she was going to run for elected office. So she launched a super grassroots campaign. It was so grassroots that I was the finance director and I was also the social media director. My poor mom. 
Anyway, after she knocked on every door in her town, she was elected to city council, which is super exciting. And um, for those of you who know me, I'm also petite, five foot Latina. And perhaps due to my very, very gritty roots, I'm a general optimist. Uh, you know, I can usually find the silver lining in almost any situation, which um, comes in handy a lot. And in 2016, I was really happy that that's sort of who I was at the core so in 2016, my husband and I were trying to get pregnant with our second kid. We were super lucky with our first kid and had gotten pregnant right away. So I just assumed it'd be the same thing with our second. I also happened to be super type A at that time. And true to my type A nature, I was trying to plan my pregnancy and the birth of my kid around my work schedule and deadlines. And, you know, I was actually trying to plan it around the flu season and winter volume. I didn't want to have my kids so that I could, you know, be there to help with staffing and operations during the flu season. Anyway, so um, things don't go the way they are planned. And um, we actually had a really tough time getting pregnant with our second kid. In fact, I had three miscarriages. And the last one was um, the absolute worst because I was further along in the pregnancy which, you know, have given me hope and um, both the physical and emotional pain of going through that miscarriage um, was really hard. In fact, I remember I had an ED shift scheduled in that afternoon when I started miscarrying. So I took two ibuprofen and I just went to work. And one of the nurses who also happened to be a very good friend of mine um, asked me when I was in the nurse's station, she's like, man, what's going on with you? You're so grumpy today. And I remember at that moment, um, I really just wanted to break down and start crying. And it took everything in me to not just cry because, you know, when you're the department chair and the only physician, you don't want to break down and cry in front of the ambulances in the middle of the nurse's station. Uh, so I took a deep breath and I just sort of made a joke. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm just on my period and I have bad cramps. And I walked away. So, you know, fast forward a few months later, and we were super, super lucky. We ended up being able to get pregnant on our own, and um, we got to celebrate the birth of our baby. And this was like back in the days pre-COVID, you know, when everybody can actually meet the baby in person when the baby's born. So everyone had come to um, meet their, our little one, including my mom. And at that time, my mom had been 10 years cancer-free. So, you know, 10 years before that, my mom was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. And she was so afraid that it would come back, she decided to treat it with a bilateral mastectomy and um, had lymph node dissections. Luckily, lymph nodes were negative. And, um, you know, it's really unlikely that her breast cancer would come back. So when she was up meeting my son for the first time, she also told me she was having this weird pain in her left arm and was having felt like this weird thing under her armpit. So I examined her and I felt a lump and obviously my brain immediately went to, you know, oh my gosh, could my mom have a recurrence? So it made me super nervous. We plugged her in quickly to an oncologist and had to make sure she can get a biopsy right away. And I was lucky because I was on maternity leave so I could, you know, support her a little bit. So a few weeks after that, while I was still on maternity leave, uh, I get a frantic call from the wife of one of my night docs. Um, she's telling me that he's critically ill uh, he's getting admitted to the ICU and I have to take him off the schedule. So he's our nocturnist and does 17 shifts a month, which obviously put our site in a huge staffing crunch. So um, I just cut my maternity leave short because I couldn't leave my site like that. And I went back to work. I went back to work earlier than I had planned. And so, um, <laughs> 
you know, um, the old adage, when it rains, it pours. It couldn't have been more true, man. So now I'm back to work. You know, I'm working in the emergency department. It'd been maybe less than a month. And I get a notice that our hospital contract is getting put up for a request for proposal. So now I'm learning how, you know, to be a mom of two young kids under three um, with a newborn. I'm still trying to breastfeed and pump. Um, I'm working a large number of clinical shifts. I'm helping my mom navigate her healthcare needs. And now, you know, as a department chair, I also get to manage my partner's anxiety and fear over our contract instability. So, yeah, things were tough. Things were stressful. <laughs> and it didn't take me um, it didn't take me a really long time to start manifesting symptoms of stress. I started having trouble sleeping. I had severe neck and back pain and I just sort of ignored it all. I ignored it all up until the point I had um, terrible trouble chewing. I started developing really bad jaw pain. So um, finally, I was like, man, I, I've never had trouble chewing before. I wasn't going away with Motrin, so I went to see a dentist. I went to a dentist. He did a pretty good physical exam, took x-rays, and was like, oh, everything's fine. I was like, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So I went to another dentist and um, same thing, reviewed my x-rays, examined my teeth and was like, you know, things look okay. So I was like, something's got to be wrong. I've never not been able to chew. So he asks um, if I grind my teeth. And at that time, I'd never grinded my teeth before. So he says, you know, is there any chance you could be undergoing some stress right now in life? Because sometimes when you're undergoing stress, you start to develop grinding at night or you clench your jaw. Oh, man, I was so surprised. I had this huge aha moment at that time, and I just couldn't believe how disconnected I had been from what I had been feeling, that it literally took me not being able to chew before I could admit to myself that I had a problem and that I needed help. Um, I guess practicing vulnerability at that time was just not part of my repertoire. <laughs> you know, I was so afraid to be seen as weak that I couldn't even admit to myself that something was wrong. So that crisis was, um, was my turning point. It was my huge aha moment. It created an opportunity for me to reevaluate my priorities and my choices. I invested time into resiliency courses, personal development workshops, read tons of books. I guess true to my sort of academic nature, when I have a problem, I just try to fix it by learning more, right? <laughs> the good thing, though, that, um, you know, through this work, I'd realized that all the choices I had made had not truly been reflecting my values. I had always said that my family was my priority and family was always first. But if you looked at my calendar any given week, you could clearly tell that that's not how I prioritized my life or my time. So I chose at that time to just stop. I just chose to stop being a victim of my circumstances and I shifted. I began to set really healthy work boundaries that allowed me to remain an effective leader without burning out. I was super intentional about setting aside time for my mental, physical, and spiritual health. And I was disciplined about leaving work at work. So when I was home with my husband and my kids, I could be fully present. I was no longer checking emails every second. You know, I'd go to the bathroom, take my phone with me to check an email. I just had to stop doing that. And I can now say, you know, after practicing all of those tools for, geez, maybe three, four years now, I'm now living a wholehearted life. You know, I have a career I love. I have a strong marriage, a great connection with my kids, and I'm still able to be fully present and supportive uh, with my mom. This personal resiliency work has transformed my life. And, you know, now I'm just on a mission to pass these tools on because 
What I've experienced is that resilience and happiness has a ripple effect. And when you're happier, your patients are happier, your family and friends are happier, and ultimately you just make a world a better place. I'm so passionate about this that a few years ago, I took on a role as the resiliency director for Vituity. And now, lucky me, I get to put my personal passion into action and pass these tools on to others. What I've learned is that doctors and healthcare providers are a very special breed. We take care of others for a living, and we've taken a professional oath to take care of others. We've also been through some pretty grueling training that teaches us to be tough, to be strong, and to always put patients first. You know what it doesn't teach us? It doesn't teach us to be vulnerable. It doesn't teach us to admit when we need help, and it doesn't teach us how to ask for support. And you see, the thing is that when we actually stop to take care of ourselves, it makes us better people. And when we're better people, we're better able to take care of others. And we're better able to do that for a longer period of time. We can have long, fulfilling careers doing what we love and still be happy people. Vanessa's story highlights something we can all relate to right now. That old adage is 100% true. Often in life, when it rains, it pours. And as in Vanessa's story, or maybe right now with COVID-19, it's like a torrential downpour followed by a tsunami, and you absolutely were not given an umbrella. And as Vanessa mentioned, it takes work, intentional, specific, targeted work to both acknowledge our burnout and compassion fatigue, but also to fix it. And it can't just be eating well or getting enough sleep. It's got to be something more, which will be different for each of us depending on what it is that's causing you specifically to feel burnt out. What are some things about your job that cause you the most stress or make you more prone to burnout? What change could you make today to start addressing those stressors? And what's stopping you? Thank you to Vanessa Calderon for sharing her story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Head to www.vituity.com forward slash Realtalk for more information or email us at Realtalk at V-I-T-U-I-T-Y dot com.